All right, well, good morning. Hey, it's good to be back with you. I was gone last week, but good to be back. We're in Psalm 73, so let's go ahead and get to work. If you have a Bible, you can begin to work your way. Psalm 73. If you're just joining us, welcome. My name is Mark. Uh, it's my privilege to open up the Word of God with you. We're working our way this summer through the summer in the Psalms, just kind of picking different Psalms. Um, but before you even get there, I have a couple confessions to make about the Psalms. Um, I was supposed to be on sabbatical this summer, so I wasn't planning on preaching any of these. Uh, I'm going to do that next year. Uh, and, and the reason I wasn't planning on, I, I love the Psalms. I, I am terrified of preaching the Psalms. And so I was like, well, I'm going to be gone. We're going to have some guest speakers. We're going to have the other elders. And the Psalms are great. Let's have other people preach them. And it goes back to about 18 years ago. I was in seminary in my last class. I was in Old Testament preaching class. And uh, I had done pretty well up to this point. And I, I was assigned my last passage, Psalm 73, what you're going to hear today. And so I was like, okay, I'm feeling pretty good about this. Put in the work, preach the sermon. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, it apparently was not. Um, so uh, the, the other students, they give you feedback, but they don't know anything any, anyways. But then the professor, he gives you some feedback. And what I, what I didn't know then that I know now is all those sermons in those classes are terrible. But uh, I, I, thought it, I thought I had done pretty well. And I just remember the very last thing that the professor said. He said, you know, Mark... Sometimes you just don't have it. I was like, what? I thought I had it. He's like, no, you just, get, you just go to next week. It's all good. And I was like, so, so I, I've been gun shy for 18 years. I, I, I really tried not to dip too much into the songs. I was like, oh gosh, I guess I don't know. So there you go. Good luck. We'll see if I can do better 18 years later. But uh, in all honesty, so again, I didn't plan on preaching Psalms this summer, but uh, I, here I am. I've been tremendously blessed to just be in the songbook and the prayer book that Jesus was in. <laughs> just to see like how, how Jesus integrated it into his life and, and his prayers and his worship and, and say, man, I have access to that. And so uh, on, in all honesty, I have, I have loved our time in the Psalms. I've loved just digging into these different ways that it speaks to different areas and struggles and, and joys and pain and all the things that the whole human experience, the Psalms have been an encouragement to my soul. And I hope that they've been for you as well. Uh, a couple things about Psalm 73 before we jump into it. It's, it's written by, you'll see, by a guy named Asaph. Asaph was a Levitical priest in the time of David. So 2,700 years ago, and sometimes you think, man, what, what can someone in a different culture, different time, different language have possibly to, to say to my life here in 2021 in Parker, Colorado? But, but, but if we're honest, this, this sermon, and I mean this passage, Psalm 73, the whole Bible really, but it is meant to be a mirror. So, so as, as Asaph gets real honest with us, like he shows us his junk, like he shows us what he wrestles with. He shows us what he's doubting about the goodness of God that we just sang about. He shows us just kind of the wickedness of his own heart, even though he's supposed to be leading the people of God. When he shows all that, we're like, man, this, the, the, God preserved this in his word for us because it's meant to speak to us. Because here's the deal. It's all of us. Like when we, when we see what, what Asaph is struggling with, there's going to be a moment if you're honest, you're like, man, I feel that way too. I, I have some doubts myself. I struggle as well. And what the enemy wants to do in that moment is convince you you're the only one. 
Like you call yourself a believer, you, call yourself, you say you love God, but you think this, you thought this about that person, you, you have these things going on in your head. You, 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 if, if the world could see the things that go in your mind, man, you shouldn't even ever go to church. That's what the enemy's going to say. But, but I'm here to tell you that's not true. That's, that's why we have psalms like this, just to kind of expose and, and show this is all of us. The people on your left and right struggle. In fact, if you have no struggle, you have no doubt, you have no ill motives, if you have none of that, a couple things you should do. One, I should give you the microphone because we all need to learn, like, how did you get to that place? But two, you should probably go to a different church because this place is messed up. <laughs> I mean... That's why we say it's okay to not be okay. Jesus will meet you where you're at. Jesus will meet us where we're at this morning. And so that's the good news of the word of God this morning. But Psalm 73, uh, I'm going to kind of just not read the whole thing. So I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll walk our way through it this morning. Uh, but as I read the word, I would ask you to listen carefully. This is God's word. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. See, see, one of the things that this psalm is going to do is it's going to disabuse us of the notion that life is meant to be lived in formula. We love formula. We love A plus B equals C. And so he kind of starts with a formula. Truly God is good to A, Israel, and B, those that are pure in heart. Uh, if, you have, if you're Israel and you're pure in heart, you're going to receive the goodness of God. We, we love that stuff. Our culture loves that stuff. So we got like six ways to, especially if you put like an F-bomb in the title, you'll be a, ne- a bestseller, right? Have you noticed this on Amazon? Uh, six ways to do this, seven paths to a better marriage, three keys to financial freedom, and we want to employ all those things, and, and, and sometimes they actually work, and so they go up the charts, and we're like, yeah, this is how life works. Surely God is good to Israel, to those that are pure in heart. This is, this is kind of a, a doctrinal assent that, that Asaph's about to give. Uh, he believes it in his mind, kind of like on our doctrine, but in his heart, he, he's not there. You ever feel that way? Like, I, I know what is true mentally, but, but in my heart, it does not feel like this. And so, what, what, what is going on in this heart? He says, but as for me, as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. He said, so in the Bible, when, especially in the Psalms, when your feet is going to stumble or slip, it's a metaphor for, for absolute destruction. It's a metaphor for losing everything. Like if you're climbing a mountain or you're on a ledge, there, there are points where if your foot was to slip in that moment, you would fall down to your total and complete destruction. And so, 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 so Asaph is like, hey, I, I know that God is good to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, I almost came all the way down. He's, he's, he's kind of confessing I, I was going into a spiritual depression. My, my foot had almost slipped but what was it, Asaph? What was it that caused you to have such a crisis in your faith? He says in verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envy is wanting someone else's life. And, and as he looked at his life, and he looked at the world and he saw that, that other people were receiving all the quote-unquote good things of the world. He's like, God, I want that life. It's an accusation against God. 
It's an accusation that says, what you've given me is not good enough. I want that life. And it's not just that life. Uh, the envy, we, we don't really struggle with, we, we don't think we struggle with it, but all the ancients saw it as uh, one of the seven deadly sins. Something that would ruin your life and your soul if you, if you were consumed with envy. But, but we kind of live in a culture just kind of soaking in the hot tub of envy, right? Like, like social media is a cesspool of envy. Every commercial is, is trying to stir in you in envy. Like you deserve this. You, you, you should have this. And, and if you don't, what's wrong with you? And, and if you're going to spiritualize it, what's wrong with God that you don't have this? And so envy, if you let it kind of sit there a while, and this, this is what Asaph has done, he's let it sit there for a while, that's going to begin to uh, lead to doubt. And a lot of doubting of God is uh, for different reasons, but rarely have I found pastorally that the doubting of God is strictly uh, just a, a struggle mentally with, with some truth. Like, I, I don't see how that lines up. Usually it's a matter of the heart. A, a guy or a girl is in a relationship they know they shouldn't be in, but their heart is so in it, and so they either, uh, they either give into their heart and doubt God, or they say, I'm going to choose what's right and good in this moment. So, so he has this envy. He wants someone else's life, and, and, and doubt is beginning to come in, and despair is, is following after that, and, and he's just going in this downward spiral. That's why he said, my foot had almost slipped. I almost came to nothing. But, but it's not just that he looked at the world and it seemed like everyone else had the good things that he wanted. He was apparently going through a season of loss, of setback, of suffering. He doesn't tell us exactly, but in verse 14, it says, For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. And, and he's like, this form, it's, the formula is not adding up. God, I get up. I go to the, to the uh, tabernacle. I, I lead your people in prayer. I, I lead your people in sacrifice. I lead your people in worship. But, but I've got this loss in my life. I've got this suffering. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's vocational. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's spiritual. He, he's like, I don't get it, God. I, I'm, I'm doing all these things and, and all I feel is pain. And, and, and he goes each day and he just makes it through the day and he gets his head on the pillow to wake up and feel the pain and the suffering and the loss once again. And day after day it goes by. But I imagine one day he's walking by and he hears some music. His face is full of tears, but he looks over and he sees other people. Their faces are full of tears of laughter. And he's like, ah. and he looks at them and he's like, man, I, I haven't seen them in the sanctuary in fact, I, I, I know that guy, and I know that girl, and they're not, they're not married together, and they're, the wine is flowing, and the music is, is loud, and, and, and they're having a great time. And he's like, man, he's trying to connect the dots, and he's like, I, I want that. I want that life. I want that kind of relationship. I want that kind of house. Look, look what they're doing. It's, it's not just that they have, have it all, it seems, not just that they've, you know, they've achieved the, the Israelite dream, the American dream of a, a bigger house and all these things. It's, it's, it, there's something more than that. In, in verse 8, it says, These people, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. They're, they're arrogant. They're not just spiritually neutral. They, they, they have this kind of pride and arrogance to them. Uh, uh, verse 11, and they say, how can God know? 
Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. He's like, I do not get it. Not, not only are they not receiving the, the justified wrath of God against their rebellion against you, God, it seems they're receiving everything I want. It seems they have everything I want. They, they, they only get bigger houses. They get more land. They get more flocks. I, he's scrolling through the social media and he's like, man, it seems like they have it all together. And, and my life is just full of pain and loss and setback after setback. It doesn't make sense. Verse 1 doesn't make sense to him. But then in verse 13, he makes this kind of confession he says, all, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. To do something in vain means that the purpose of what you were trying to do is thwarted. So I could say, in vain did I try to find a girlfriend in high school. And you would know, I had no girlfriend in high school. Or we might say in the Olympics, in vain did she run for the gold medal, but she ended up in fourth Meaning her purpose, uh, everything she trained for, everything she was going after, when, when it came time, the purpose was thwarted. Now that's really interesting that, that Asaph will say, in vain, look what he says, in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. This is a stunning confession. Derek Kidner, who's an uh, Old Testament scholar, wrote a commentary on this. Here's what he says about verse 13. To decide that such earnestness has been a waste of time is pathetically self-centered. He, here's what Asaph is admitting in this moment. He's like, God, I didn't love you for your sake. I loved you for what you could do for me. I didn't love the truth for truth's sake. I, I, I tried to love the truth so that the truth could advance my position. I didn't, I didn't feed the poor for the poor's sake. I did it so you would see God and that you would reward me. Pathetically self-centered. But this is all of our story. He, he, has, he has slipped into what I'll call transactional living. Transactional living. I do this and you do that. I, I, I do my part and you do your part. And, and in the marketplace, it makes sense. I'll give you this much money, you give me this goods. I'll, I'll do this much work, you give me this much. That makes sense. But when it comes to our most important relationships, it is cancer to those relationships and to our souls. When, when we communicate verbally or otherwise to our kids, hey, if you do these things, you'll receive more of my love. That's toxic. It's toxic in our marriage relationships when we think, and every one of your, you that are married and had an argument, it's basically probably come down to the fact that one of you or both of you are thinking in a transactional mindset. You're thinking, I did all this, I did these things, I did these chores, so why isn't he or she doing his thing? And you begin to look at your life and you begin to get consumed and you're like, you're not doing your part. We're supposed to meet in the middle. We're supposed to, it's 50-50. The problem with that is that God says that the whole point of marriage is to display the gospel. Now, if, if the whole point of marriage is to put on display the truth of God, imagine what that would look like. If Jesus said, I'll meet you halfway. You do your part, and I'll do my part, and we'll meet in the middle. There would be no gospel. There would be no hope. Jesus did all of it. He, he loved and gave 
all of it. And so when we come into our relationships uh, with one another and with God and we say, hey, I'll do this so that I can get this out of you, we're totally missing the point. He's totally missed the point. He's like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells where the younger brother goes off and he lives a wicked life and he he gets all these things and he comes back and eventually gets the the hug and the, the reception of the father and the older brother, what does he? He's like, it's not right. I did this, I did that, I did this and why haven't you given me mine? And the father's like, what are you talking about? Everything I have is yours. If we live transactionally, we will shipwreck our faith, we'll destroy our marriages, we'll, we'll really be miserable people. And, and so this is what he's done. He's, he's been a kind of a miserable person. He looks on the outside that, that he is doing all these things uh, out of a, a love for God, but it was a love for himself, and he was expecting God to deliver, and God wasn't delivering. The A plus B was not equal, we equaling C, but here's what else Derek Kidner says about this verse. He says, to decide that the, such an earnestness has been a waste of time is pathetically self-centered, but the very formulating of the thought has shocked the writer into a better frame of mind. All of a sudden, he's like, oh my gosh, that's, that's why I, I serve in the temple. That's why I pray. That's why I give. That's why I do all these things, so that in the end, God would give me the life that I think I deserve. He, he, he's full of self-righteousness. He's full of this kind of transactional, I'll do this for you, God, if you do this for me. And it begins to shake him. And so in, uh, in verse 16, he, he begins to turn a corner. He says, but when I thought of how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It wasn't adding up in his mind until I went into the sanctuary of God. Until I went to, into the sanctuary of God. So, so we don't know if he did this intentionally or just because it was part of his job, but a moment happened where, where he gathered and, and we got to ask, what did he see in that moment? In that time, God had said, this is the place where I will come meet with my people. And, and as he walked in there kind of self-loathing, self-righteous, wondering why he doesn't have the good life that he, thought, that he thinks he deserves, as he walked in there, what would he have saw, seen? He would have saw the called out people of God praying to the transcendent God of the universe. He would have saw them lifting their voices in praise to the one that is sovereign over all things. He would have looked over and he would have saw a bloody altar with animal after animal after animal being sacrificed. And he would have been reminded that sin has separated him from fellowship and relationship with God, but that God is pointing to a way atonement can be made through a sacrifice. And in that moment, something clicks for him. In that moment, he gets a new perspective. It's like when uh, you're, you're at the airport and it's raining outside. You get on and you take off and eventually you come through the clouds and everything changes. There's sun and you see a perspective. You see where you've been and where you're going. All of a sudden, when he has this felt in encounter with God, everything changes. See, envy leads to despair and doubt, but, but a felt presence of God can give you the perspective that you so desperately need. And he sees a couple things. First, he sees, he sees the reality of the situation for the wicked that he is so envied. He says, I discern their end. Truly, you set them on, in slippery places. There it is again. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away 
utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. It says what seems so solid, so good, so permanent in their lives is really all of our lives. It's just a vapor. And, and every good thing that you are trying to acquire in your life right now, everything, good things, you know, your retirement account, your, your home, your job, your, your relationships, every relationship, even the best relationship is coming to an end. You won't take any of it with you. And, and he just sees that, like, oh man, this is very, very temporary. And he says, it's like a, a, a dream when one, one awakes. You know how when you come, when you're in the dream, it just, it all feels so real until, until you wake up and you, you're like, oh, and it becomes clear. This happened to me this last week. I, I was early in the morning. I was dreaming. I had walked into a bathroom and the shower curtain door flies open and a zombie woman comes and attacks me and, and I wake up and I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, there's like that two or three seconds where you're like, is that real? And you just, it kind of lifts and you're like, oh, thank goodness. That really happened. I'm not watching zombie movies or anything like that. I don't know why it happened. It wasn't even a scary dream up until that point. But, but everything came clear in that moment. This is what he's saying. He gets the experience and the presence of God and he's like, oh, yeah. So, so he sees them uh, in light of what's, re- what's true and, and real. And then he sees himself. He says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ir- ignorant. I was like a beast toward you, God. He's saying, I was so self-centered, so self-focused. It, it, I was more like an animal than a human. Because it takes humanity to, to love and, and to serve and to, to be merciful and gracious. He was just so self-consumed. He's like, I was, I was like an animal in my thinking. But more than just seeing the end of the wicked and how he was, in verse 20, 21, it, it begins, or 23, it begins to change. He says, nevertheless, here's what I see now, God, up above the clouds. Nevertheless, in spite of my suffering, in spite of all the the unfulfilled dreams and promises on this side of eternity, nevertheless, I am continually with you. It is the promise of God to the people of God throughout the Bible, in every book of the Bible. God with us, Emmanuel, I am with you. You And then look what it says. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Here's what's reality. He thought, my foot was about to slip, but I have been gripped by your grace. You hold me by your right hand. And not just that, like that, like when a li- you're, you're walking your little kid and, and they slip, but you got their right hand, they're not going to fall. He's like, that's the reality. I'm not going to fall. Y- you are good to me. I'm not going to fall. But, but it's more than that. He says, you guide me. So we're, we're gripped and we're guided. So, so, so God is in control. And God wants you to have the very best. I, I didn't say the good And there's a lot of good things that some of us have and others of us don't. But God desires for you to have the very best. And the very best is Him. 
So it says, you grip me with my, in my right hand. You guide me, and you're guiding me to a place. To, you will receive me to glory. So we are gripped, we're guided, and we're being led to glory. He is making us more and more like him. And so he'll do whatever it takes for us to grow in that reality. And sometimes that takes guiding us, walking us through the valley of the shadow of death. Because every true believer has to eventually come to what verse 25 says. It says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He, he comes to this place where he says, everything else doesn't matter. Whom have I in heaven but you? It's a place where every true believer eventually has to arrive. God is the gospel. What do you get when you come to God by grace through faith? You get him. You get his presence. You get the thing that you were made by and for. There is no greater good. There is no greater glory. There is no greater satisfaction. There's nothing in the universe that is better than the presence and the power and the love and the mercy and grace of God in your life. It's not. And when we think otherwise, we are putting something or someone or something, even good things, above that, and that's idolatry. When we say, man, I, I just really want from you, God, is a good marriage, a great marriage above your presence, then you've, you've twisted things. And, and, and God will say, that's not good for your soul. What I really want is this or that. It's not good for your soul. What God gives us because he loves us and his goodness for us is his presence. <coughs> Excuse me. And sometimes to get us to that point, he has to uh, ungrip our hands from the things of this world. He has, to, um, he has to let us go through the valley of the shadow of death. So in the end, when he strips everything away and all we have is God, we can be a people that says God is enough. God is more than enough. We can be a people that say, in all honesty, whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire except you. Now we're all on a journey to that end. Like probably none of us are there in this moment yet. And here's the thing. You might, you might even get close this afternoon, but tomorrow will be another journey. And another journey, and another journey. And so, he says in the end, how, how do we actually do this? He says, but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. He's, he, he was focused at the beginning of, of the things that he didn't have. He was focused on the wicked. Now he's just like, you know what? I'm going to put myself under the waterfall of God's grace in my life. See, Asaph said, when I came to the sanctuary, everything changed. Back in the Old Testament, you would go to a place. It would be the tabernacle or it would be the temple, and that's where you would meet with God. But we don't have that anymore because the tabernacle, the temple has come down in Jesus Christ to meet with us. 
And so we don't have to go to the place. The, the first way that we can go to the sanctuary of God is just simply through prayer. We have access to the very throne room of God in prayer. And prayer is meant to lift us up above the clouds to see our, our life, where we've been and where we're going, and to give us perspective. And so Asaph says, I'm going to uh, seek the Lord as a refuge. I, I'm, going to, uh, I'm going to pray. But, but that's not all we could do. I think we do what Asaph did. We, we, we choose to be led by the truth and not by our hearts. He says, I'm going to go in, even though I don't feel like it. I'm going to go to my gospel community. I'm going to go to church. And I'm going to hear the people of God praise God. I'm going to hear the people of God lift up their prayers. I'm going to be reminded of what's true. And ultimately, each week, we're going to come to this table. And we're going to be reminded that, that there is only one formula. There's only one transaction in the universe that matters. He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so we come and we take the bread and every week we take the bread because every week we have to be reminded of what's ultimately true. Every week we have to get above the clouds. And when we put the bread in our teeth and you feel the crunch and you hear the crunch in your ears, you're reminded that he was crushed for you. That he loved you so much that he was crushed for you. And then you take the wine and you drink it and you're reminded that his blood was spilled for you. And you wonder about the goodness of God when you look at the wicked succeeding in the world and you say, no, I've got a cross in history and I've got the spirit living in me that tells me he is with me, he is with me, he is with me always. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire, at least in compared to this, but you. So let us be a people. Let us be a people that just understand we need reminders. We, we need to get up above the clouds regularly because this world will pull you in. The gravitational pull of envy on your heart will lead you to despair. It'll lead you to, dis- to doubt. But when you come into the presence of God with the people of God and you hear the word of God and you taste the elements of God, you are reminded that God is the gospel. He has given you himself. To that end, let me pray for you. God, I do pray for each of us, Lord. We all have baggage and envy and doubt and despair in our hearts and our lives. Lord, I pray like at Asaph that you would show your mercy and grace to us. Show us what's true. What's true about you. Lord, I pray that as we take this communion today, Lord, that it would be once again, a reminder of your great love for us and your great presence and the greatest gift the world has ever seen in your son, Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.